Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs Weekly Podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. Good morning, Harvest Springs. It's really great to see all of you on this Sunday for our second service. If you're joining us online, thanks for joining us as well. A couple of things before we get started. When you came in the auditorium this morning, I hope you picked up a packet of communion elements. We're going to be celebrating communion. So if you're at home watching online, grab some bread, grab some juice to participate with us as we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So if you didn't grab one of these, they're outside in the lobby. We encourage you to grab one of those. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to take communion this morning to remember the death of Jesus at the very end of our service. We have been in a, in a series called Drift. We started this two weeks ago, and we are walking our way through this book that we know as Galatians, the letter to the churches in this geographical region of Galatia that we know today as Turkey. And Pastor Corey started this series a couple weeks ago, and today is week three of this series. You may or may not have been here in the past couple weeks. I just want to catch us up if you haven't been here, but remind us if we have been here. What Paul is doing in this letter is really reminding the churches in Galatia, the church that meets at Harvest Springs, that Jesus is the anchor in a world where we can easily drift from anything that matters. When we drift, we end up in places we never intended to be. And so often we can drift from our faith in Christ because of all the things that are happening. And that's what was happening in in these churches in Galatia. They were drifting. And so Paul says, remember, remember Jesus. And today we're gonna look at chapter three but we're also asking you to take some steps beyond the Sunday. It's really easy for all of us to come and gather in this space on Sundays and to walk out those front doors and life happens and we neglect and we drift. So we're encouraging all of us in this series to take some steps to move beyond a Sunday. We believe and we're, that we're called as a church to help everyone take their next step toward Jesus. And that step happens every day in the process of you living out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, understanding what he's asking of you by the power of the Holy Spirit, changing you to be more like Jesus. And that just doesn't happen on a Sunday morning coming to church, even though we value being connected relationally to each other on a Sunday. So we've developed these three steps. They're pretty easy steps for you to take throughout the week. The first is we're going through the book of Galatians, and the first step that you can take is to actually read the book of Galatians. Seems like an easy thing, but in the midst of all of life, it's very difficult, I know. And in fact, Galatians itself is a difficult book to read. So if you've been reading with us, we're encouraging you to read one chapter a day. There are six chapters in Galatians. So on Monday, tomorrow, if you want to start today, or maybe you've been doing this in the past, but tomorrow, just read Galatians chapter one. And then on Tuesday, chapter two, Wednesday, chapter three, Thursday, chapter four, Friday, chapter five, and then Saturday, chapter six, and then come back next Sunday, and we'll look at chapter four. But there's a, there's a process that happens as you read the scriptures. So if, we start, if you started reading Galatians tomorrow, we have three more weeks, you'll read through the entire book of Galatians three times. And my prayer, and I know this happens from experience, is you can read the Bible one day. You can come to the same passage a week later and reread that passage. You're going to hear something different the first time than you hear it in the second time. It's just what happens because God's word is alive and his spirit is speaking in the midst of it. So as you read Galatians, one chapter a day, as you keep reading it and reading it and reading it, God's spirit is gonna be able to point things out to you that you may have not seen the first reading. And this is just the habit that takes place as we read scriptures. Second step, so just read the book of Galatians. Second step, we have these journals available in the lobby. This is 
the text of Galatians from the New Living Translation. And it's just a journal. And you can look in here, and the text is on one side, and there's some notes on the other side. You can fill this in, circle, highlight, color in it, draw pictures. I don't know, as you read the scripture, whatever you want to do here. But really the challenge is, this is simple. It takes all the everything out of it so you can focus on the text, but there is also a deeper connection in this journal. This is connected by Tyndale House Publishing to an app on your phone called the Filament Bible app. And on that Filament Bible app, there's instructions in the front cover how to do that. You download this app, and there are different study notes in this app that you can access, like a study Bible on your phone. There are reflections for devotional readings, and there are also videos that are linked to help you understand exactly what Paul is doing in this book of Galatians. So these are available in the lobby for $5. If you don't have $5, we're just going to give it to you. Okay, we, we believe that reading God's word is that critical that we want to give you this. You don't even need one of these. You just need one of these. Or maybe it's on your device or on the computer or on your phone or whatever. But we encourage you to read the book of Galatians together as a church because God wants to form us and shape us into the image of Jesus as we read this together and as we talk about it and as we apply it to our lives, what it looks like for us to live out what it means to be like Christ. And then lastly, so read the book of Galatians one chapter every day throughout the week, Monday through Saturday. Grab this journal if you would like a copy out in the lobby. And then we're also encouraging you to join a small group. So our small groups are focusing on Galatians in, in this series. And if you're not connect, connected to a group, we'd love to connect you to a group. Sometimes that takes a little bit longer than what is expected, but we will do our best to get you connected to a group as quickly as we can. So there's a group's interest form on our website. You can come talk to me after the service as well. We'd love to help you take that next step. Read the scriptures, pick up the journal, and join a group, okay? Everyone has a communion set, and there's notes pages out in the lobby. That's a lot at the beginning of this, right? Set, set these aside for later. You and I, we are recipients of the fulfillment of many things that took place before we were even born. I want to focus on the technology of a phone this morning. I'm going to connect it to the scripture, I promise. I'm not just going to give you a history of the phone, but I want to give you a history of the phone because I want to separate this into three different eras of, of the phone technology that you and I participate in every day, and then we're going to connect this to scripture. But we live today in 2022 in the fulfillment of an idea that was birthed in 1876 when Alexander Graham Bell patented the telephone. Now, Bell and others were developing a modern communication system that would replace the telegraph. You see, in the 1870s, the main form of communication was the telegraph, which included Morse code and this little button that you would push to send all these different links of sounds across wires that would carry a message, and that would have to be encoded and sent and decoded and then delivered. What was happening during that time, there was so much going on with the commerce of the United States and all over the world that only one message at a time could be sent using the telegraph. And so Bell and others were tasked to come up with a solution to increase communication so that more than one message could be sent at a time. In 1876, Alexander Graham Bell patented what would be known as the first telephone. Now, telephones come in all shapes and sizes. You may have seen a telephone that looked like this in the 1920s or early 1900s. 
This phone is called a candlestick phone. It's very different than the phones that we have today, right? There's no dial. There's actually a handset you put up to your ear. You were talking to the, what looks like a microphone. They're all, they're connected by some sort of wire, right? There's not even a dial on this. What would happen in this era of the telephone technology is that you would pick up that receiver. You would get connected to some central hub where there was someone who would act as a switchboard where you would say, I want to I call so-and-so. They would switch some wires, right? They would put you through, and your communication had to be mediated through someone else to get to where you were going. Fast forward 50 years. This may be before most of our time, but this one is not. Rotary dial phone, right? How many of you remember this rotary dial phone? Most of us in this room, for the millennials, may not. But you remember how you had to dial every number, and you put your phone in that circle, and you'd all the way around to the end, and it would click, and it would come all the way back, and then you'd have to go to the next one and do it all, all over again, seven, ten times, whatever, however many digits you were putting in to this phone. But the rotary dial phone appeared in like the 1970s, was a different sort of technology where there wasn't this centralized, mediated communication. There was a direct line of communication through the phone, but there were still cords attached to it, right? Still to the receiver, to the dial, but then there was a cord that was connected to somewhere else. But fast forward 50 years now, and most of us have one of these in our pockets, right? Smartphone. Smartphone. So we move from the candlestick phone to the rotary dial phone, and now to the smartphone, which is so, so smart that most of us, when we woke up today, didn't even realize we lost, we, we gained an extra hour of sleep last night, right? You didn't have to reset your phone to tell you that it was daylight savings time, right? You just woke up, and whenever you woke up, your phone automatically went backwards on its time, and then you gained an extra hour of sleep. Some of us were aware of that, some of us were not. And so if you think this is the 1130 service, you're a little bit early. But our phones are so smart, they're not just devices for communication. They're now connected to this thing that we know as the internet, right? And we have access to incredible amounts of information at the touch of our fingertips. But these different eras of phone technology, from the candlestick phone to the rotary dial phone to now the smartphone, something has changed. But the smartphone is the fulfillment of an idea that existed long ago, 150 years ago, in a man and many men and, and women who created this thing that we call the phone. It finds its fulfillment in the smartphone, and chances are in 10 to 20 to 30 to 50 years, the smartphone will be obsolete, just like the candlestick phone is obsolete, right? Technology is moving at that pace. But you and I, we are the recipients of this long ago promised fulfillment that we could communicate directly with anyone at any time without using a telegraph through this thing that we call the phone. Now, as we look at the scripture in Galatians chapter three, Paul is going to do something similar in helping us understand three different eras of time to help us understand that what was the promise long ago to a man named Abraham, it came through this man named Moses is then fulfilled in this man named Jesus. Paul's going to set this up, and he's going to help us understand this, but we have to 
have this framework in mind as we look at Galatians chapter three, but we also have to have this other framework in mind. You see, what Paul does in Galatians and what he does in most of his letters that we have in our New Testament is that he assumes that his readers understand something, that there is common shared language between them that you and I as readers in the 21st century have no idea what Paul's even referencing. And so the task for us becomes, how do we reconstruct what was happening and what were the assumptions that Paul was making that he didn't even have to communicate? You and I do this all the time. When we communicate with someone, we start telling them the story. And this happened to me this week. I was, someone was telling me a story about what was happening in their life and they dropped a name. And the assumption was that I knew this person and I had to stop the conversation and said, who's so-and-so? But we do this all the time, right? We just assume that everyone knows what we know. And Paul does that in his, his writings in the New Testament. So we have to reconstruct these assumptions in our communication so that we exactly know what Paul is talking about. And here's some just basic understanding of what's going on in, this, in these churches of Galatia. There are some people who are coming outside of the church that Paul started in Acts on his first missionary journey, and he returns to them on the second missionary journey. And there is some tension that's happening. Paul, he leaves these, this group of churches. He goes about his work as God has called him to do. And he, he hears that there are some things happening. And so he pens this letter and he sends it to him. And this letter is sent to them. It's read out loud to everyone gathered. And essentially this is what was happening, that there were people who were coming into this church that Paul started with this message about Jesus and they were changing the message. And they were saying, actually, Paul is wrong in what he's talking about. You see, Paul's critics, they were saying this. They said that serious followers of Jesus follow the law of Moses. The law of Moses found in the first five books of our Old Testament, specifically circumcision. And they were having people be circumcised in order to be made right with God. And they would go on to say, this is right here in our scriptures. These critics would say, it's in our Hebrew Bibles. It's in the Old Testament. It's right there. And they went to the scriptures to prove their point. And Paul came in with a different gospel and he's writing about something very different. And what Paul says is this. He says, all followers of Jesus have been freed from the law of Moses because Jesus made the world new by inaugurating the new creation. Paul says, the Mosaic law doesn't even apply to those of you who are in Jesus Christ. And this is the tension. This is the tension in Galatians. It's a tension that seems very strange to us because that doesn't exist in our day today. But we can often be like those people in that first century. We can add things to Jesus when Paul says Jesus is enough. Jesus is all we need. You see, the issue of Paul's day in this letter to the Galatians was Bible reading. Paul says to his critics, go back and read your Bible. You didn't read it well. You didn't catch what God was doing. And so what Paul is going to do in Galatians chapter three, he's gonna set up three different eras, an era of, Moses, of Abraham, an era of Moses, and an era of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he's gonna say, God is doing something new in Jesus that started all the way back in Abraham. And yet there's this thing called the law in the middle of it. Bell started the candlestick phone technology that led to the rotary dial that found fruition and fulfillment in the smartphone. And Paul says to these Galatians, what you're doing is you're walking around in 2022 with a rotary phone trying to figure out how to shove that thing in your pocket. And that's what Paul's telling them. 
Okay, so let's, let's read Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read it out loud. It's, it's rather lengthy, but I think it's important that we read it. We read it with these lenses in our mind as we listen to what Paul's saying. And really what Paul is going to be focusing on today is faith. Faith. So here's the big idea. Before we read chapter 3, here's the big idea. If you walk away from anything, today is about faith. Here's the big idea is that faith believes, faith obeys, and faith trusts that Jesus, the Messiah, begins the new creation now. And there's a lot in that phrase, that big idea. But really, it's about faith. Paul's going to use faith many times in this chapter. And he's already talked about how God created Paul to be this apostle to the Gentiles. Paul talked about a story about how God transformed his faith by meeting him on the road to Damascus and then trained him up in the faith. And then there were some arguments that took place in Jerusalem about what is the faith. And then Paul's going to tell us exactly what faith is and how that relates to this situation in Galatians. But I believe it also relates to you and I today about what faith is for us today. So let's read Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read it out loud. I'll give some commentary. We're going to pray. And then we're going to unpack what Paul's saying in the midst of this somewhat dense letter chapter of this letter. This is actually the central part of what Paul is saying, the crucial argument about what he's saying and everything that underlies everything that he says in the book of Galatians. So he says this, beginning in chapter three, verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians. Wouldn't you like to receive a letter where someone calls you a fool? Paul's calling this whole church, you're foolish. You foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Christ Jesus' death, he says, was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Paul keeps going. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course you didn't. You received the Spirit because you believed or you had faith in the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be after starting your Christian lives in the Spirit Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it is not in vain, was it? I ask you again, Paul says, does God, did God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe, because you have faith in the message you heard about Christ in the same way, Abraham, Abraham believed, Abraham had faith at God, in God, and that God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, Paul goes on to say, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share this same blessing with Abraham who received it because of his faith. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under this curse, as the scripture says. Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commandments that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. But, Paul says, big contrast here, Christ Jesus has rescued us from the curse 
pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, curses in everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised Abraham so that we who are believers, we who have faith, might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Those 14 verses are pretty dense. Paul's stacking idea on top of idea on top of idea, connecting words, connecting past historical events to the present day. And he's making this comparison and contrast to the fact that the Galatian believers, they received Jesus when they believed in him as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And yet they're adding, once again, this law, the Mosaic law, to follow all these different things and to include circumcision in it. And Paul says that Jesus fulfilled the law. Paul says you can't obey every command, but Jesus took on the curse when he hung on the tree, when he died on the cross, and he made everything right. And Paul says that the Gentiles, the people who are outside of the covenant of God, they're not the Jews, the nation of Israel, they're also in this promise. It started with Abraham, fulfilled in Jesus. All that's in those first 14 verses, and then Paul keeps going. Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is the case. God gave the promise to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if it meant many descendants, rather it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. This is what I'm saying. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would, break, God would be breaking his promise for if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accept, accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Why then was the law given? It's a natural question that maybe we're even asking this morning. Why was the law given to God's people? Paul tells us it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. The law was given to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through the angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there conflict then, Paul asks, between God's law and God's promise? Absolutely not, he says. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it, but the scripture declares that we are all prisoners of sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. The law was given to reveal sin and we're all prisoners of sin, but Christ came to free us from the law and to free us from sin. Paul continues in verse 23. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way, Paul says. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be, right, be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. And then Paul ends this way. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile, 
slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Let's pray. God, this is a big thought from Paul. There are a lot of words, a lot of connections, a lot of assumptions that he assumes that his hearers know. So God, help us today to understand your word. Help us to understand what faith is for us. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. We pray, God, that you would help us to to be people of faith, to be people who understand that it's only through faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross that we are made new as people. You invite us into this new creation work that you're doing. And so God, come and speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is faith? What exactly is faith? I think faith is one of those words that we assume we know what it means because we use it a lot, particularly in the church world. We use it a lot in our society. I have faith, faith that something's going to happen. But I think faith is, is a confusing word because it means a lot of things to Paul. In this chapter, in Galatians chapter 3, this word faith occurs 14 times in the noun form. It also occurs two times in the verb form. But we miss this in our English connection. So this Greek word pistis is the word for faith that we translate as faith throughout our English Bibles. But there's another verb form of this word pistis, pistuo, which is the verb form that we miss because we translate that word as believed. So maybe a better translation to show the connection linguistically back to faith should be that Abraham faithed God. Abraham believed. No, Abraham faithed. It's the same word that Paul's using here. Faith is so important in Paul's argument here in chapter three that we have to understand exactly what he means by it. It's one of those words that has so much depth. We do this in English quite often. Let's think about the word cool for a moment. Cool, C-O-O-L. This is much like the word faith. We can talk about the fact that it's cool outside today, right? It's in the 20s, okay? It's cool in your refrigerator. It's cool in your freezer. But we also use this word cool in this way. When you're in a conversation with someone, maybe there's some disagreement. Maybe there's some tension. We might ask a question like this, are we cool? Are we cool? And really the implication in that use of the word cool is are we okay, right? It's not, hey, is it cold outside? Are, is, are we cold? Like, do you need a jacket? No, we say, are we cool? We say, are we okay? That's what we're communicating. But we also use cool, so we use cool as something that's cold outside, something that says it's okay, but we also use cool this way. And that's really, really cool, right? We use cool in that way as a way of saying, this is really good. That's awesome. That's incredible. But cool has this range of meaning. Do you see what I'm getting after here? And the same thing is true with faith in Paul's writings to what he's saying. He's not just telling us it's, this is faith. Because I think you and I have a misunderstanding, some misconceptions about what faith actually is in our English North American minds. Several of them I want to provide for us. You see, oftentimes I think we, we think of faith as opinion. Faith as an opinion. Let me give you an example. I, I have faith that tomorrow it's going to be 80 degrees and sunny. 
I have faith. I really do have faith that tomorrow's going to be 80 degrees and sunny. Now, that doesn't take into the fact that a meteorologist said tomorrow's probably going to be in the low 20s and snowing, right? But I have faith. Oftentimes, we use faith as a means of disregarding reason and education, of just saying that I believe that this is going to happen because I believe it, right? We often put faith off as some sort of opinion that just matters to us and what we think is true and what we think is right. In the church world, another misconception about what faith is, faith is often this set of beliefs or doctrines that we have. These are things we have to assent to mentally, that God is the Father, Jesus is God's Son, Jesus' death has atonement for us on the cross, the Holy Spirit is available to us, Jesus exists in this Trinity. All these beliefs that we have in our mind about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be part of a church. Faith is a doctrine just to be believed in our minds. And because of that, we move to our next misconception about what faith is. As a result, if faith is just what I believe in my mind, faith is very passive. It doesn't require any action on my part. I just have to believe it in my mind, and I'm okay. We do this quite regularly. We think we just believe in Jesus, and that'll get us to heaven because we believe the right thing. These are all misconceptions about what Paul is talking about when he talks about faith. Faith is not an opinion. Faith is not, faith, Paul does use sometimes, talks about faith as a set of beliefs, but it's more than a set of beliefs. It's more than just this passive thing I do in my mind. So what exactly is Paul talking about when he talks about this word faith? We talked about with the, with the word cool, it has so many different meanings and it's a range of meaning. For Paul, it can mean many different things. It can mean Mean being loyal, meaning faithful, and how faith is understood is understood in this context. And so Paul can talk about faith in one context. He can connect it to a group of other words, and it can mean something totally different. He can talk about it as a Christian virtue that you and I should have as followers of Jesus. He can talk about it as a mental belief in our minds. He can talk about it as a loyalty that we follow, a faithfulness. He can talk about it much like a doctrine that all the things that the church believe, and it can go much, much more. So what exactly is faith? If this is so important in chapter three to what Paul is saying. Nijay Gupta is a New Testament scholar. He wrote a book called Paul in the Language of Faith. And he provides several nuances that I wanna bring to all of us this morning to help us understand exactly what Paul is saying with this idea of faith. So what Nijay does is he combines three different ideas to help us understand exactly what this word faith means. First, faith is belief. Faith is, requires your mind. It requires a function of thought, and it's mental, right? There is something or someone that you have to believe is true. Some proposition, some person, some action that you have to believe as true in your mind. Faith starts in your mind, yes, but it doesn't stay there. It moves, and it grows. Secondly, Nijay says that faith involves obedience. It's not just belief, but it also involves obedience. And there is a relational understanding here that as you have faith in someone or something, you're going to do something about that, right? If, If I believe, if I have faith tomorrow, that's gonna be 80 and sunny. My outfit tomorrow is gonna be 
shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops because I'm going to then take action on that, right? But I'm not going to wear that tomorrow, I promise. Some of you will, but I'm not going to. So faith involves belief, it involves obedience and faithfulness and loyalty, it leads to action. And finally, it involves trust. Faith involves trust. It's an act of this of your whole person. We would say it this way, it's an act of your will. You have to make a choice in your will, in the, plate, in the plate, far deepest places of who you are, to say, I'm going to actually trust that this thing, that Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, makes a difference in my life. And that is part of faith. It's a function of your will. It includes all of who you are. And when Paul talks about this word faith, all these different meanings are in there. They're nuanced. And the context is going to dictate what it means. But I believe at the heart of it is this. For, for Paul, faith, to have faith in Jesus is a belief. It means that you obey what Jesus asks you to do. It means that you trust him as well. And that at the central part of this faith, as we talk about what is the faith, it is, it is in those actions of trust, obedience, and belief but it's also a content of the faith. There is some substance to what you believe to be true. And this is what Paul says is the faith, is that this man, Jesus, he was the Messiah promised to Israel. Paul's gonna connect it all the way back to Abraham and that his crucifixion, his burial and his resurrection are what defines us as followers of Jesus. And in fact, what defines us as humans. So Paul says, That's what faith is, is that faith is the belief and the trust and the obedience that Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. Jesus fulfills all that the the Old Testament longs for. And when he comes, he changes everything. He changes everything when he's a newborn baby, which we're gonna celebrate in just a, a couple months. He changes everything through his death on the cross when he's put into the tomb and three days later, he raises from the dead. That changes everything. And the actions of Jesus in that moment fulfill all the longings of the Old Testament, but it brings in this new creation that God is doing in the present, in the here, in the now. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we were in in the series, Stories Jesus Told. We talked about this idea of the kingdom, right? Paul's saying the exact same thing Jesus said in his parables. He's saying that the kingdom of God, which seems to be this eternal forever thing out and wherever, when Jesus comes, that thing comes now. That rule and reign of Jesus comes now. And Paul's saying the exact same thing. Because what Jesus did on the cross isn't something that we get the benefits for later. When we get to whatever happens at the end of time, Paul says it happens now. What Jesus did for us ushers in this new creation because Jesus is the Messiah and makes all things new. And he desires to make you and I new people. And this is the story that Paul wants his critics to read. And he has some presuppositions. On your notes page, there's a chart that I want you to to look at. In all of Paul's argument, there are these three different eras that he's talking about that we can get lost in. See, I think we come to a text like Galatians chapter 3, and we're just overwhelmed. Because Paul's making all these connections and 
we don't know what he's talking about. And so we just stop reading the Bible because we don't think we're ever going to understand it. I believe we can understand it. And I want to give us some tools to help us understand exactly what Paul is saying. And so underneath Paul's argument are these three different eras of what God has done in his salvation history. God is in the midst of saving everyone. And the, the critics of Paul in Galatia, they started with a man named Moses. And Paul says, you're not reading the Bible right. Go back to this man, Abraham. So you may be aware of this man, Abraham. You may not be aware of it, this man, Abraham. Abraham, his story is recorded in Genesis 12. And I believe it goes all the way through chapter 23, chapter 4 of Genesis. But God comes to this man, Abraham, after creation has been upended from the creative purposes of God. God created everything, and it was perfect. It was good. The humans messed things up when they reached for something that they wanted to take for their own benefit, and they wanted to live their lives apart from God's rule. God always wanted a partnership with humanity to rule and represent him through the image of God on this world together. And the first humans messed it up. And you and I are a result of that fall, even to this day. And so what God does to redeem the whole situation, he goes to this man, Abram, who's, that was his name at the time. We know him as Abraham. And he goes to Abram and he gives him a couple promises. He says, Abram, here are the promises. I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. Really what he says is I'm going to give you a seed. We think of seed as something that grows into a plant, but seed here meant a descendant, a son. One seed, Paul tells us, read it right. And then God also said, I'm going to make that seed bless everyone in the world. Everyone on the world will be blessed because of that descendant, that seed. And Abraham, he could have just thought to, in itself, to himself, oh, that sounds good, God. I'm just going to keep doing what, I want, what I'm doing with my life. But no, it's, we're said in Genesis that Abraham believed, Abraham had faith, Abraham trusted, believed, and he obeyed what God was asking him to do, and therefore he was made right in God's sight. It was credited to him as righteousness. He was made right with God. He had right relationship with God. Abraham didn't just stop at belief. He packed up all of his stuff. He moved from Haran all the way down to modern-day Israel. And he took all of his possessions, all of his livestock, all of his family, and he trusted God, even though he had no son. And if you read the story of Abraham, it's interesting. He doesn't have a son for many, many years. And God keeps coming to him again and giving him this promise. And Abraham always believes. Abraham always has faith. Fast forward many generations. Paul says this is the first era, the, the Abraham era, the, the, promise is, the promise is given here. It's from God. It's all about faith, believing, trusting, obeying God. Abraham's going to be a blessing. God blessed him. He's going to bless everyone. God's made, Abraham's made righteous. It's by God's grace. And it includes Abraham's seed, and it's going to bless all people. 430 years later, Paul tells us, after Abraham, his promises are starting to be fulfilled by God, there's this group of people known as the Hebrew people. They become the nation of Israel based on their descendant, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's called Israel. They grow. God rescues them out of Egypt, takes them to Mount Sinai, and they get this law code from Moses on the mountain who received it from the angels from God. 
And then Moses gives them the law. And this law is 613 laws to follow. And Paul says it was impossible to follow all those laws. If you read the story of, of Israel, they always kept failing. Even though they had all, everything written down, they couldn't do it all. And Paul contrasts this work of the law with the promise of faith that God gave Abraham. And then Paul moves on from Abraham to Moses. Moses gave the law. It was just intended for a limited time, for a limited purpose, for the limited people of God. And then Jesus came as the Messiah of Israel. You see, throughout all the history of Israel, there were these, there were these rumblings, these rumors about this Messiah someday who would come, about this one who would come to save, who would rule from David's line. He would be the, the, the image of what humanity should have been. And that was fulfilled in Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he gives us the Holy Spirit. He comes as an act of God's grace. And Paul tells us that we are made right with God through faith, just like in Abraham's time as well. Here's the big argument that Paul's making again. If we stack these phone, the history of the era of the phone on this diagram, if Abraham is the candlestick phone, and Moses, stay with me, promise. Moses is the rotary dial phone, and Jesus is the smartphone. Well, Paul is telling these Galatians because they insist if anyone is in Christ, they have to follow the Mosaic law. Paul says, no, you're going backwards. You have the smartphone. Stop trying to put the rotary dial phone in your pocket and carry it around all day with you. It doesn't work like that, Paul says. They were going back to the law which Jesus had fulfilled and superseded. And what Paul says is Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. It's interesting how Paul ends this passage in chapter 3 in verse 23. Paul talks about faith in two different eras. Verse 23, he says, before the way of faith in Jesus was available to us. Paul says, there was a time when Jesus was not on this earth. Jesus always has been, but as a man on this earth and the incarnation, there was a time when he wasn't. And that was when the time of the law was and Abraham was as well. But when faith came, when faith in Jesus came, everything changed. Back in chapter one, verse four, Paul says this, when he's writing the introduction to this letter, he said, Jesus came to rescue us from this present evil age. Jesus came to rescue us from this present evil age. You and I live in a present evil age. And when we accept Jesus as savior, as the Messiah who fulfills the story of Israel, everything changes. And he rescues us from this present evil age by bringing in the age of the kingdom into this world. Paul tells it this way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He's talking about what happens when you have faith in Jesus again, but it's in a different letter to a different church in Corinth. He says this, this means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone, and the new creation, the new life has begun. When we encounter Jesus as Savior, and we accept by faith, by belief and trust and obedience that that 
truth about who he is as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the King of everything, who desires for us to live in his kingdom and under his authority, that changes us. Paul says it's like we have a new set of clothes when we're baptized. We put on Christ. We're new people because of what he's done for us. So let's review the big idea as we close. It says faith. Faith believes, faith obeys, faith trusts that Jesus is the Messiah. And he begins the new creation now. So let me ask you a question. How would you describe your faith? You to talk about it with someone. What is faith? How is your faith? How is our faith as a church? Are we trusting, believing, and obeying Jesus? Are you trusting, believing, and obeying Jesus? Because he changes everything. I don't know where you're at this morning on your faith journey, but all of us are on a journey. We have one step to take to get closer to Jesus. But Jesus gives us the spirit inside of us to make us new, to make us a new creation. And if today you've never received Jesus as Savior and Lord in your life, it's simply just a prayer away. To reach out to God and say, Jesus, I need you. Maybe you're looking for meaning. And life feels like the present evil age. Jesus came to rescue you from that, to give you new life and to make you new. But for others of us who've been walking with Jesus, maybe today your faith has drifted And your faith has moved from intentional trust and obedience just to a simple belief in your mind. A box to check. Make sure you get to where you want to go. But as we said earlier, you never drift to where you intended to go. So we're going to take some time just to be silent. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to take communion together as we close. Let's pray. God, we trust and we believe that you're good. I pray this morning that as we take in all that Paul is saying, and it's a lot, that you'd help us to see ourselves in your story. That you invite us into it, that the promise given to Abraham so long ago blesses even us today, those who we could call ourselves Gentiles. We're part of that promise. You sent Jesus to fulfill it. So God, if there's someone in this room who doesn't know you as Savior and King, I pray that today that they would just reach out to you, would find you, that you would welcome them in. You'd adopt them into your family. You'd forgive their sins. God, today would be a a day of salvation for them. For the rest of us, God, help us to examine our faith. Are we trusting you? Are we obeying you? Are we believing you? All those things combined together as we live out this followership of your son, Jesus. And so God, thanks for your story. Thanks for inviting us into it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close today, if you have a communion elements, I encourage you to open those up and we will get the the noise out of the way. So there's a top layer that reveals the the bread, the bottom purple layer that reveals the juice. But at Harvest Springs, we practice an open table. Not to be a member of our church to take communion. We just ask that you have faith in Jesus that you have faith in Jesus, that you have trust, belief, obedience, even if it's just beginning today. But these elements Jesus gave us as a way of remembering his death and his resurrection, mainly his death. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. 
and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, when you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. So this morning, we're gonna eat this piece of bread. We're gonna remember that Jesus' body was broken for us and this offers us forgiveness and begins a new creation in all of us. Let's take and eat this new thing that God is doing through the death of Jesus. Take and eat the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then after supper, Jesus took a cup. He said, again, this is a new thing I'm doing. It's in my blood. It's not just a typical cup of wine. But Jesus said, I'm giving my life, my blood. You will see it. And whenever you drink this, you remember that my life gives you life. So this morning, take and drink the blood of Jesus shed for us as we drink this juice, the life of Christ poured into us. So let's take and drink as we remember the death of Jesus today. And then Jesus reminds us at the end of this that we proclaim his death until he comes. We proclaim his death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus, for his sacrifice on the cross. Help us to remember that that changes everything. So God, as we go about our week today, this week, pray that you'd help us to live as your new creations as your reflections in this world, that people might come and ask us, what is the hope that you have? God, that would be an opportunity for us to tell people about Jesus. So Lord, help us this week. Pray you'd help us to take one step closer to you. Thank you for your son. Thank you that everything centers. And God, I pray that this week we would anchor our lives to Jesus. Pray in his name. Amen. Amen. As you leave today, We encourage you to tell someone if you accepted Jesus as your savior. We have a gift waiting for you at the new here, Next Steps area. We'd love to come alongside of you as a church, help you take that next step toward Jesus. Walk with Jesus this week. Be obedient, trust him, and believe in him. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you right back here next Sunday. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.